this is a passage that is, I think, very well known to the church. It's been, it's been a creed. It's been a mantra. It's been encouraging for the church for 2,000 years, not just the church in Ephesus. And we've done that work through this letter, translating it to us, uh, that we are still recipients of the same word. Paul was inspired by the Spirit to write it to this group of churches in Ephesus, and there's so many similarities that I, I don't have time to work through that again. It's, it's recorded and it's archived now in, online if you want to catch up to this series a little bit, but I hope and I believe you can engage here uh, with these powerful words. Let me begin with a little book report. I read a book this week, Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. It, it, good book, I recommend it. It is secular, so, you know, take pause, um, but I believe the parallels to the spiritual, as if there's any great separation between the secular and spiritual, they do line up. Uh, in the culture code, Daniel Coyle argues there are three primary measurable qualities for successful organizations. I'm always interested in newer research or findings about what makes certain companies tick and thrive and, and explode in success and others never make it and get off the ground, even with all of the wisdom or intelligence or background and experience they may have, and then some with almost none of that flourish. So why? And that's kind of what Daniel Coyle tried to uncover through some research. And, and these three or maybe not the ones you would expect, these three primary measurable qualities for uh, successful, flourishing organizations. They are one, build safety, two, share vulnerability, and three, establish purpose. So I don't see many people writing, that's okay, but they, I will say again, they are build safety, share vulnerability, establish purpose. So not what you would think for some of the most successful companies in our world today, that these are some of the, the findings through incredible research and neat stories. So I, I, like, I really enjoyed the book. Fairly easy read. I read it this week. Building safety tells one another and continually reinforces that you, are, you belong here. You're safe here. Your place and your future is secure here. And, and companies do that and say that in different ways, uh, but they build that safety. Uh, second is they share vulnerability. From that sense of safety and future security or a sense of that, uh, vulnerability is shared in the form of trying new things, uh, maybe ideas that you wouldn't otherwise say because they might sound dumb, uh, Weaknesses or shortcomings, failing and being able to express that. And by the way, it's heightened extremely when the leaders go first and share their vulnerability. And, and three, establishing purpose. Organizations that clearly know where they're headed, where they are today, and how they're going to try to get there. And they share that over and over in different ways, often through language and mantra and catchphrases, and it just becomes part of that culture. Well, I think it was, I didn't mean to read that in order to preach anything about it, but it was just on my mind, and as, we, as I started studying to preach this passage, it's amazing that Paul, who's trying to build the organization of the church, more of an organism than an organization, a living thing, uh, and I mean, when would you put church and organized in the same sentence anyway? So Paul trying to build this, build up the church that it would flourish, that it would be successful, that it would be healthy, and in many ways, he's the architect of it, right? He's been the planter and founder of the church in Ephesus. He was there for over two years with them, loved them deeply. Now he's writing from prison back to them, trying to encourage them of who they are in Christ, 
who God is. Remember who God is, therefore who you are and now how you are to live. So he's always trying to build them up and he did so by building safety. And he did that in the first three chapters. You're secure in Christ because of who God is, who's unchanging. You are chosen, you are adopted, you are safe, your future is secure. You're marked with the, with the Holy Spirit. You are marked with a seal. You are seated in the heavenlies. All things that he said in the first part of that. He's built this safety. There might, might be no sense of safety in the world around us, but spiritually you are safe and secure. And from that, vulnerability. Now we can be known and know others. We can fail and make mistakes knowing we are already forgiven in Christ. Paul shares his own vulnerability in chapter 3, right? He said, I, I am the least of all the saints. You know my story. You know my background. I persecuted the church. I mean, there was nobody that missed it or messed up as bad as Paul. And he's saying, if I have the grace of God to now preach the gospel, to be his minister, if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. He shared his vulnerability by saying a couple times, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. We heard it here at the beginning of four. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He was truly a prisoner of Rome, but he doesn't think of it that way. He says, I'm bound by, by Christ, ultimately. I'll do anything for him. He's my master. He's, he's, he's my true emperor. I'm under his sovereignty. I'm his prisoner. And if he has me in prison and in Rome, uh, may it be. So be it. And do not be ashamed, he said. And do not, be, do not fret over my imprisonment. It is to your glory, he said. So he shares his vulnerability. If we know anything, maybe probably we don't, but if we do some research and some study, we'll find that prisoners of the Roman Empire in that day would be left to die most often. Without, now, there was freedom for family and friends to bring them provision, and they could do that and sustain their life, both clothing or blankets and food and, and drink, but otherwise... Rome was fine letting most prisoners just starve to death. Maybe they provide meager bread and water once a day, but they may die of hypothermia depending on certain conditions. Very horrific. The Romans were pretty good at torturing people. Well, this may have been a little bit of a different case because Paul was awaiting to see Nero and to stand trial. So they may have given him a few more provisions, but in his other letters, we do know he deeply relied on people, friends, the saints, bringing him provision. Well, that's vulnerable. Say, I need you. What does he say in this letter? He'll say in chapter 6, what I need most from you, though, is your prayers. Continue to pray for me. Pray that I would be faithful to proclaim. Paul had this picture that, hey, there are a bunch of lost people in this city and even amongst the imperial guard. I mean, imagine the opportunity now. That they would have never heard the gospel if I wasn't imprisoned here. And some had even come to faith in him. So he's saying, pray for me, pray for my faithfulness, pray that I can endure all the way to the end if my life is forfeit. That's vulnerable. So Paul built safety amongst them, reminded them of their security in Christ. He shared vulnerability, which would give them the freedom to share that same vulnerability one to another. And he clearly established purpose. He gave them purpose and purpose and purpose again and again in these first few chapters. I mean, from this place of being safe and secure and we're in this together, now this is how we live. This is what it looks like. And this is so crucial. We've been saying this often through our, our, our study of this letter. The first half is the indicatives of who you are, who God is, the gospel. Be reminded. 
And now the second half is, how then do we live? Because of that, how do we live? And that's what Paul is now shifting to. Therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, in light of all of this, of who your God is and who you are and being reminded of that, this then is how you live. Here is your purpose. Here's where your destination is. You're already seated in the heavenlies. That's your true future home forever. But in the meantime, we live on this earth and we have a purpose and a mission to live out this calling that we have been called with. This high calling as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life, NIV, to walk in a way, ESV, worthy of that calling. He builds purpose now for these, the second section. Walk in a manner worthy of this calling you've been called with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, there's your intro. Intro over. Here's the body. Walk. Here's the purpose, right? Here's our purpose. Walk in a manner worthy. Walk is a significant word for Paul. Uh, It shows up so often in his writings and in the New Testament. It's become, we might say, Christianese. When someone says, oh, I walk with Jesus. I walk with the Lord. It sounds weird until it becomes common language, but it's from Scripture, It literally means to walk, but it's to live out life. It's to live life a certain way with a certain purpose in a certain direction. And Paul says, walk that way. Elsewhere, he'll say, keep in step with the Spirit in Galatians. we, We were people who were lost, aimless, wandering at best. And he'll say it in chapter 4, verse 17. No longer walk like that. But that's how you used to walk. Those that do not know God and the fertility of their minds, they're darkened into their understanding and they're alienated from the life of God. That's, that's what we all were, Paul argues. No longer walk like that. It's aimless. It's, I mean, think about trying to get to a destination in the dark or lost in the woods. You're, you're, you have no, no bearing, no compass, no vision. You are lost until Jesus finds us, rescues us, and becomes our Compass and the Holy Spirit is now the guide. I remember my grandfather telling a story. I love my, my grandfather Russ's stories uh, as we, he would often recount his life growing up in Yakima on the farms. He was a hop farmer in Yakima. Praise God for the Cascade hops. Anyway, just tangent. And he would tell a story of often they would have to go and find cattle that had roamed and did not return and they would take their horses out to find these cattle and sometimes it would be late late at night and dark and he recounted a time where he was often simply as they found the the steer and would guide it back uh, he would just let go of the reins because the horse would naturally go back and he said if I took the reins we would be wandering all over and not, not go the most direct route and often get lost but the horse knew the way now think about the, the guiding light to have a compass, to have a, a Holy Spirit that is, is like your navigator. Uh, you have a purpose, a direction, and a course. Jesus is our beginning, and now he sets us in that way, so we walk in that. And what is the calling? The calling that Paul is referring to? Really, all of chapters 1 through 3, but it's called out right when he begins the letter, verses 3 and following of chapter 1. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. For in love he even predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters to himself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace." Here is just the beginning of this call. You have been loved this way. He'll go on to say that on and on, right? You have been loved so deeply. Now walk in a manner worthy of that. Live life in a manner worthy of that. Really, we all have this same call. We, may exp- we will express it similarly, though uniquely. We are gifted uniquely. Paul will get to that in this chapter also. But it's very simple. Simple but not easy is a phrase I'll often use. It's simple. We have been called to know the love of God and to love him with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love others as ourself. To see Jesus and to follow him. To live like him and to make disciples for him. We all share the same call. The way that's expressed out is very unique according to personality and giftings and opportunities. But we all share the same call. Walk in a manner worthy of that. Paul continues to use that language of walk uh, throughout the rest of the letter in chapter 5, three times. Verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So live, right, because our behavior reflects what we believe. Verse 8 of chapter 5, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He continues that same theme that he began in chapter 2. Darkness and light in the Lord. Walk it out. And in verse 15, be very careful. Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So walking becomes a theme for living life according to the calling we've received. With direction, with purpose. Jesus is your compass. The Holy Spirit is your guide. How do we walk out our faith according to Paul in the church? He says this, with all humility. Start there. With all humility. Ironically, in Greek literature, humility was not a common term. And if it, was, if it was used, it was almost exclusively a negative thing. Someone would be ridiculed for being a humble person. On the, on the flip side, what was esteemed? Pride. Self-confidence. It should give us pause and we could easily reflect on maybe how similar today we are to a Greek and Roman culture. And if we know our history at all, that's a sobering thought. But today, you're not esteemed for being a humble person. Today, in our culture, we are self-promoters, self-proclaimers, self-centered. Self-actualizing is what is affirmed and esteemed. But we are called to be humble. And humility, humility, the opposite of pride. Humility is not thinking of yourself less. I love this definition. It's thinking It's not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. The truly humble person is not thinking of themselves because the only thing that is consuming their, their time is others. How are others experiencing 
this situation, this circumstance? Who, who, who is in need? Who is hurting? How could I serve? They're observers. And, and Paul really probably gives the, the best example of, of humility and call to live out humility in Philippians chapter 2. This is verse 3 and following. He says, Do nothing from your selfish ambition or from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You can have this mind amongst yourselves. Let this be your attitude, your mind set, because it was Jesus's. And then he goes on in the famous hymn to describe what Jesus did. He laid aside all things. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He became like a servant. He became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And then God exalted him. That's who Jesus was. He's our model. He's the one that lived life in a way that we are to emulate because that would be the only hope we have. How could I possibly choose to be more humble? No, we think that's still a self-focus. We get our eyes on Jesus, the one who walked this out. It's the only hope we have to live it out, to see who he was and how he lived and what he gave and to live in a similar way evermore. Amazingly, well, ironically, Daniel Coyle's research emphatically proves that humility is crucial for successful organizations. Groundbreaking. Astonishing. It is, it is funny reading it like he keeps posing the question within his book, what would you expect? He gives a scenario and explains it. What would you expect to be the answer, the result of this research? And I already know the answer. And, and if you're tracking with him, you'll know it too. But you're, you're, the reflex is that it will be the opposite things that he's proclaiming. Very few organizations and groups and uh, teams and businesses look to Scripture as their guide. But if Daniel Coyle is simply tapping into personality traits and abilities of, uh, of character that are promoting thriving well, it's pretty clear that they've been evident for thousands of years. It's how we've been wired. It's how we've been wired for community and for success. Humility, especially amongst leaders, modeling that. Imagine that, groundbreaking. And move on to the next one. Gentleness could also be translated meekness. Meekness, like humility, is not weakness. In fact, it is strength. It is strength under control. I love that definition. Strength controlled. This word in extra Greek literature means, can also be described as a soft wind. I love this. A domesticated stallion or a soothing medicine. And see what they all have in common is there's greater power and influence in that thing, but it's being expressed under control. It's measured. A, a soft breeze is nice and soothing, but we know the power of wind to move and destroy if it was in the form of a hurricane or a tornado. A broken stallion who was wild, who has had, previously had incredible power, still possesses the same power, but is now under control. A medicine like a balm or a salve that has great, in fact, too much of it would be harmful, but just the right amount is healing 
That's what meekness is. Moses is considered the meekest man who ever lived. I always thought that was funny because he wrote those words. Numbers 12. But if it is true before Jesus that he is the meekest man to walk on the earth, it doesn't mean he was the, the weakest. It means he, he had, the, had incredible influence and power, but it was under control, the control of the Spirit. And we do see for the majority of Moses' life, as he led God's people, we see that exact thing. We see meekness because there is power, there is fire, there is passion in that man. But it was mostly always under control, the control of God, the control of the Spirit with him. Jesus claimed of himself, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Is that true for anyone this morning in life? You are weary and heavy burdened. Come to me, Jesus says, this is Matthew chapter eleven twenty nine. And you will find rest for your souls because I am, I am meek of heart. Take upon on, on you my, my yoke. Be yoked to me. It is not a heavy burden. It is light. He's carrying that with you. But you are yoked with me for the work I have for you. If Jesus calls himself meek and truly was power under control, the greatest man ever, we see him calming the winds with his voice. He has authority over the storms. We see him driving out the money changers in the temple with a whip. He didn't do that in uh, weakness or in timidity, but he did do it in meekness, power under control. And at that point, he was expressing himself more fully. We are called to this humility and to this meekness. We are not meant to be pushover people. We are meant to be powerful. The only power that we have is in and through the Spirit under control. And the, reason, the way that we control that power working through us is to recognize it has nothing to do with us. We are but vessels. Well, Paul elsewhere in Corinthians will call us jars of clay. And you drop a jar of clay off the table, it's going to shatter. That's, that's the strength that we possess in ourselves. But we contain something. The power of the Holy Spirit chooses to dwell in us. What a clay pot think more highly of itself because it it because of the water that it held because of the wine that it held only to its folly the wine doesn't make the vessel great it was the potter that made it in the first place and what filled it was what ultimately gave it purpose we are like conduits simply to be vessels to stream a, a different source, a, the true power. This is how power is under control as we live with humility and with meekness. Next thing he calls out, be patient, bearing with one another in love. How is patience for you? I've been praying recently, God give me patience and give it to me now. It's usually when I'm dealing with my kids. <laughs> You feel that way sometimes, like, I just want, I want to learn this. But it's, it's, it's called a fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. We don't ultimately, like humility, these are hard things to choose. I'm going to, I'm going to be more patient today. We try, don't we? We come up with all sorts of ideas and ways to be patient, to count to ten, to slow down, to remove uh, frustrations and irritations in our life. But it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our, our source with God, with who we are in Christ, our identity. 
The hardest, hardest thing truly to be patient for is something that you know is good that is not happening in your timeline. Justice, deliverance, healing, something that you know is God's heart but he's saying no to. That is so difficult to be measured with. When Paul is directing the church to bear with one another in patience, and I just I wonder how he would think and respond to today's culture of church hopping. How quickly we are to leave when things get hard and to go to the other church across town. That's not what Paul is talking about here. There was no church across town. There was one church. When he says bear with one another in love, he's not saying, no, no, don't bail, don't go over there. He's saying, you've only got one family. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be messy. It's family. It is worth it. Bear with one another in love. It's your eternal family, by the way. We think we can avoid people here on earth. We're going to be with them for eternity. Maybe we should work harder at being with them now. And I know you're just saying, we'll all be refined then and reformed. It'll be fine. That's giving up. That's not being faithful to the call to bear with one another because we are family. We don't get to choose our family, do we? And if you're like, I look around, I'm not bearing with anyone. It's probably because they're bearing with you. So praise God (laughs) for the patience and the love of others towards us. We need that. We extend that to others. Again, something that we need the Holy Spirit to help us with all of these things. This kind of patience, though, is truly a long-suffering. A long-suffering, not that every moment is painful and difficult. There is great joys and family. It's simply that forever, uh, in this life, in this, in this church, wherever we are, it's not our eternal home. It will always lack. We'll always long. That doesn't mean we don't strive and be eager. It says be eager for this. But we know it's not, we're not making heaven on earth Heaven is heaven. It's coming one day, and we long for that day. And so that's the long suffering. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Two things here. One, unity is active, not passive. Be eager to maintain. This is a present participle in the Greek. This would be translated in English better, a little clunky. That's often what happens. Always be eager to be maintaining. It's just an ongoing action. Unity in the church is not the result of a lack of fighting or quarreling or conflict. It doesn't just result. It's not a a result. It's an active work. If you've ever been out of shape and gotten in shape, praise, praise God for that. Good, It's hard work, isn't it? When you get to the place where you're like, I'm where where I want to be. You don't stop, do you? You don't just go, okay, good, and take a rest. You continue to work rhythms and disciplines to stay there because health and fitness and strength is not a natural result, is it? And so too, with that body metaphor, we have a body metaphor in the church. There is always work Always active work to love, to serve, to see, to listen, to pursue one another. That's first. Unity is active, not passive. It's not just going to happen. It's not just a result. Always continue to be eager for this. Second, the Holy Spirit will help 
Right from the beginning, isn't this encouraging? This was eye-opening to me this, this week. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are not told to create unity. I, I can't tell you how many times I, I've been in situations that are tense, conflicted, quarreling, and divided. Ha, have you? Have you ever been in a church like that or a group like that? or a situa- Yes, of course you have because you've been in a church. And in those situations, I'm often at a loss for how do I create unity here? I have a gift of, of peacemaking. Sometimes it's a curse. I'm just trying to line up with the where that's the gift of the Spirit. But I need this reminder as much as probably all of us. We don't create unity. It's been created. Jesus has broken down the walls. He has made the two one. He has brought us all into himself. The Holy Spirit is making us one. Jesus prays in, in, in John 17, Oh God, Father, make them one as you and I are one. It is God's will and desire. He creates unity in his people. We are called to maintain it, and it's work. But praise God, we don't have to create it. Because we are one in Christ. We are brothers. We are sisters. By the way, another astonishing, eye-opening revelation from Daniel Coyle. He identifies early on in his book that when you ask individuals, workers within an organization or members of a successful team, a group, you ask them, describe your coworkers. Describe your work environment. What is that like? They don't use the terms team or coworkers or comrades or even friends. Most often, they use the term family. And the subsequent relative terms, they're like brothers and sisters. Successful organizations get to that point. And that's kind of where he starts his research. How do they do that? And that's where he through his research, identified those three critical things. They build safety, they shared vulnerability, and they establish purpose. It's pretty amazing. We are a family. Now, that's, that's labeled for us when you read through Scripture. God, our Father, adopted as sons and daughters, members one to another. But do we live like it? Do we describe one another like that? Are we actively working for it? So how do we apply this? We've learned, now we turn to action, spiritually and practically. I try to give us always that first heart response to the truth of God's word and where, where we immediately see in the mirror. Right? Do not only listen to the word and do nothing, this is what James says, but look into it like a mirror. It shows you who you are. And, and then if your face is dirty, clean it off. I mean, <laughs> Go and, go and live changed. So how do we hear the word and respond to it where we know we fall short? So spiritually and then practically. Spiritually, we're reminded of who we are because of who God is. That we must be fully dependent on Him. Notice the Trinity in this passage. God our Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There is one God, there is one Lord, there is one Spirit. And this is not just our help, but it is our model. God our Father is one, though He is unique. Right? He is three in one. He has perfect community in Himself. He is one. How do we become one like Him? That's what Jesus prayed. He's our model and He's our help because He is that. We can be it. 
It seems impossible at times, but we are called to it and he will work for it on our behalf with us. So we trust him, we lean on him, we look to him. We can't simply muster up these things. We ask him to give them to us. Fill us, Lord, with these things because of who you are and what you have done. We renounce, this is our spiritual renouncing and repenting of all of these ways that we have done the very opposite. So Lord, forgive us. We repent where we have been self-centered that we might walk in humility. We repent where we have been harsh and callous that we might walk with meekness, power under control one to another. We repent of the demanding of our own agenda, our own time frame that we might walk with patience toward one another. We repent of where our ideals have become idols that we have turned to worship rather than long for that we might live in peace. We repent of our passivity, our indifference, where we have complained or even caused division, that we might be eager to maintain the unity that you have created. Some of us are simply disengaged because it's easier instead of actively engaged because that's harder and messier. We repent of that, Lord. It's not what we are called to. Remind us, Jesus, of the price you paid to make us one. You gave your life for that. So forgive us, Lord Jesus, and empower us, Holy Spirit. That's the spiritual, and as we respond today to communion and in singing and in prayer, that becomes spiritual connected to the practical. But before I end here, I want to call out this practical, because this is the final kind of piece of, of Coyle's research, which is very important, too, even for the church, for this, if we're going to be a healthy, thriving organism, family he, lo- he calls out in that last section about establishing purpose. Where are you today? It's the leader's kind of vision of where you could be, where you are today, and how to get there. What are the steps along the way? And successful organizations have that so clarified. And most leaders will use language like mantras, catchphrases that, be, that probably sound quirky and weird uh, at first or even to outsiders, but eventually become a part of the culture because they're actionable. And sometimes the more quirky they are, the more ingrained they, they become. I just picked a few from the book because some, some companies will continue to shift those, those mantras and that language. Some will hold true to a, a statement or a phrase for, for decades. Apple, think different. And like it, it permeates almost everything they do. Think different. The Navy SEALs, here's one. The only easy day was yesterday. They speak that one to another, I guess, all the time. For IDEO design, going out of your way is the secret sauce. For Pixar, Pixar has many. I like this one. Fail early, fail often. For Union Square Hospitality Group, he, he did a research with some of the most successful restaurants in our country, how they made it work when so many fail. And he had many also. He was, very, he was a very quirky leader but if it ain't broke, fix it. You see how, and we could go on and on, and I would take up your time, but encourage, read the, read the book if you like that kind of thing. It's, it's just interesting, but it comes together for Paul too. As Paul writes this, and he's, writing, he's giving them language like this right here, 
This, this was either already language for them that he's reminding them of, or he's writing a fresh language that became creedal for them. In the second part of this first section, he uses the word one seven times. And they, this started to become an early Christian creed. There was one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. There was one spirit, there was one body. And whether that was just flowing from him and they took it and distilled it and made it into uh, mantras and catchphrases, it didn't take me long because I like this kind of thing to think, of, think and imagine the Ephesians saying things like this in hard times and difficult times to encourage one another when they gather, when someone's at. We are one body, we have one spirit. One body, one spirit. Hey, hope is calling. Hope is calling. Hey, maintain the spirit, maintain the spirit. God is over all, through all, and in all. I can just see them shortening that. It's over all, through all, in all. I, I get like goose flesh when I think about that and think about the church speaking one to another like that because they were in it. They were in a warfare mentality. They were persecuted and oppressed at all sides. They were to thrive, to, to beat all the odds. They needed one another. They needed to not be alone. They needed to encourage one another. They needed to share vulnerability. They needed to know that they were safe and secure, both in the Lord and belonged one to another. That is the church. What about Union Hill? Oh, I know. As a, in, in high school, this, this kind of derailed because we're, we were immature in high school, believe it or not, but at one point, we had a mantra called 2 5 and 2.5 represented Philippians 2.5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What started as encouraging, and, and hey, right now, and it was often self-focused too, like, whoa, I, I crossed a line, either my language or my behavior, 2.5. My attitude is to be Christ. And we would encourage one another. And where our immaturity came in, it became kind of a joke, like, whoa, hey, that was a bad joke, 2.5. Um, but I think of mantras and catchphrases and encouragement that can build up that morale. And I, I was reflecting, do we, have, do we have those? We're trying for that. When uh, Some of you are inter- interacting with our language of greenhouse and planting. Ah, it's quirky, it's weird. Yeah, it is, but it's meant to be unifying. It's meant to give us handles to grasp onto. Get planted. If, if you are in a stormy season of life or in a drought season, to use that language, Find nourishment and life. Get planted. There is healing and recovery and rest available for you in a community of people. Get planted. Not just on Sundays, but in life groups, in one another's homes. Hey, get, get growing. You're not meant to stay the same. We've got some great growth group opportunities, a new one starting this fall. We'll be talking about that in the weeks ahead. Really excited about that. Get growing with the Lord and with one another. Get bearing, bearing bearing and sharing, bearing fruit. You are all gifted. Sometimes we don't know what that gifting is. Start serving. Where is there a need? Where can I help? Serve alongside others. We have many, many opportunities. Come and ask. Write a note. How can I help? We'll get you plugged in. Start bearing and sharing fruit one to another. And start sowing. Get sowing. Sowing seeds for the gospel. That's been our challenge this summer. Is just How do we do that? How do we sow seeds of hope of the word of God? Those are supposed to be like catchphrases that you'll probably hear me say often. Dig in. 
Maybe there's more. I'm probably, as a leader, not as aware sometimes of the quirky language that I use, but it is intentional, and I would love to see it grow and swell in the season ahead. I'll invite the team to come, and let's pray that we might respond in only the ways that God is asking us to respond this morning. We come to the table. We do this every Sunday. If you're a guest with us and you are desiring to follow Jesus, even if today that feels like a brand new decision, man, I, I, I need Jesus. That's all you need to know to come and receive what Jesus did. Because when he shared this meal with his disciples before he went to the cross, they were so blind to the fullness of the gospel, but they were coming to love Jesus. They were moving towards him. Now, rightly, we're told, and in Scripture, we, look, we come with humility. We come saying, Lord, help me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, where I have wronged, have done the opposite of what Paul said to people around me, help me make that right. That's the right attitude as we come. It doesn't mean we solve everything before we come and receive his mercy, before we belong. Our belonging determines our beliefs, and our beliefs will change our behavior. So you belong. You are welcome to come to the table. We have a chance to give. The boxes are here to give generously in response. Many of you do that faithfully. Thank you. One of the best gifts to us, though, is a card that has a prayer request or an encouragement or a how can I help or I'm new here because it shows what God is doing in and through a greater community. So I invite you to respond that way. And we sing. We sing creeds. I think we have one like that that we're going to sing because God's people have always sung creeds together. And even if, as Catherine said earlier, singing is not your thing or is a little weird, it unifies God's people. So you're part of a, a weird family like any other family, but you fit right in. So let's be people who respond as God leads. If there's something that you're uncertain of or having a great difficulty with and you could use prayer for, uh, please come. I would love to pray for you. There's others here that can pray for you. You can sit in the front. Someone will come and pray with you during this time or you can find us afterward if that feels a little strange to do. We would just love to pray and encourage you today. Love you. Bless you. Have an incredible week or two if you're traveling in the weeks to come. Let's be God's people of movement and response.